It was about 11 years ago, I think March 4th, 2007, something like that, that a, a documentary aired on the Discovery Channel, on Vision TV, called The Lost Tomb of Jesus. It was pretty much a Canadian affair. Executive producer James Cameron from the makers of Titanic. Uh, and the director was a uh, documentary filmmaker and religious studies professor called Simcha Jakubowicz, who also has a television program on, I think, the History Channel called The Naked Archaeologist. Viewer discretion advised. No, just, but he was, the two of them were exploring, in the subject of this documentary, they were exploring a tomb that was uncovered in just outside of the city of Jerusalem by a construction crew. And what, draw their, what drew their interest to the tomb was the constellation of names of the people who were buried there. Because the names of the folks that they found in the tomb, many of them bore a striking resemblance to names of people in the family of Jesus. There was a Joe's which was named in the scriptures as Jesus' brother. There was a, a Mary. And there was even uh, a place labeled Jesus, the son of Joseph. The whole point of the documentary was to do sort of a statistical analysis on how probable it was that this was actually the family tomb of Jesus and that Simcha Jakubowicz had discovered the remains of the body of Jesus lost for 2,000 years. Now, uh, at the end of the day, the findings of the documentary widely discredited. Uh, there were lots of reasons to believe that this was not Jesus' family tomb. I mean, first of all, um, there was one uh, spot that was labeled Judah, the son of Jesus, and there's no mention anywhere in history of Jesus being married or having a child. Uh, another one was the Jesus place was labeled Jesus, son of Joseph, but nobody ever called Jesus the son of Joseph, um, primarily because of the virgin birth story. And thirdly, because um, the Jesus family tomb would never have been in Jerusalem. It would have been in his ancestral home of Bethlehem or his, the home he was raised in in Nazareth or in the city that he lived in as an adult, which is called Capernaum. But the whole point is, 2,000 years later, this book and the documentary that go with it gets all this publicity because 2,000 years later, people are still trying to figure out what happened to the body of Jesus. And the one thing pretty well everyone is convinced of is that what the Bible says is not what happened to Jesus, that it is not likely, if not possible, that Jesus was raised from the dead. What's interesting is that this doubt that swirls around the question of resurrection is not a new doubt at all. In fact, you don't have to wait till 2007 to find people questioning the resurrection of Jesus. In fact, in Matthew chapter 27, starting verse 62, there is a story where Matthew himself, only decades after Jesus died, finds himself having to address doubts concerning the resurrection of Jesus. In Matthew 27, 62, it says this. The next day, the one after preparation day, so he's talking about the Saturday in between um, the Friday when Jesus died and the Sunday that was Easter Sunday, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days, I will rise again. 
So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he's been raised from the dead. This last deception will be worse than the first. The chief priests and the elders, the religious leaders, have just gotten their way, what they've been hoping and planning for since almost the beginning of the gospel, and that is to get rid of Jesus. And yet, even with Jesus lying in the tomb, something is sitting funny in their stomach. They all of a sudden remember hearing about a prophecy that Jesus repeatedly said that he was going to die and then three days later he was going to be raised from the dead. They go to Pilate, the governor, and they say, listen, we're a little bit nervous that the disciples are going to break into the tomb of Jesus and steal the body and claim that he's been raised. And that last kind of final con that they pull on the people of Israel be the worst one of all. Not only have they set up Jesus as a fake Messiah, they've established it with a fake resurrection. And so Pilate says in verse um, 65, he says, take a guard, go and make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting a guard, a seal. In the ancient world, they used to um, seal letters, uh, but they didn't have envelopes. They couldn't, you know, lick the edge or peel the strip or whatever. So they, what they would do is they roll it up like a scroll and put hot wax or warm wax on the seal and they would impress the governor's signet ring into the wax so that as the wax cooled and dried, the letter would be sealed shut and the governor's signature would be on the wax. And there, when the person who was receiving the letter, if, if that wax seal was broken, they would know the letter had been opened and been tampered with. And it's this idea that the Jewish leaders used to seal the tomb. They probably did something like set up a rope that went from the stone door over to the side wall and it was sealed on both sides so that if that rope was moved or broken or the seal was broken, someone could know that the stone had been rolled away and the tomb had been tampered with. In addition, they took a Roman guard, a contingent of soldiers, and they posted them in front of the tomb with the express, express content, intent of preventing the disciples from breaking into the tomb and stealing the body of Jesus. Now, challengingly for the soldiers, they were ready for just about everything except for uh, what actually happened. It says in Matthew 28, verse 2, there was a violent earthquake for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. Listen to this. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. Somewhere between being paralyzed by fear and actually being rendered unconscious, unconscious in shock the soldiers were completely incapacitated by what happened early Easter Sunday morning. We talked about this last week. The angel comes and meets the women, tells them to go and tell the disciples that Jesus has been raised from the dead. And then down in verse 11, it says, while the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. And when the chief priests had met with the elders, they devised a plan. They gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, you're to say his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. 
And if this report gets to the governor, we'll satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this day. The soldiers go back into town. They tell the chief priest what's happened. They call the last meeting of the subcommittee to get rid of Jesus and they decide to bribe the soldiers enough money to lie and to say well we all kind of fell asleep and while we were sleeping the disciples broke into the tomb and stole the body of Jesus which is a ridiculous story right on its face I mean this is these are the most well-trained military personnel in the known world at the time And they literally all fell asleep. Every single one of them fell asleep during the night watch. And not a single one was woken up when the disciples snuck in, rolled the stone away from the tomb and stole the body of Jesus and then ran off. And and this is the story they're going with. Despite the reality that dereliction of duty, the punishment was often death. (laughs) The story makes absolutely no sense. And now, I mean, you can kind of see the irony That it was actually the story that the chief priests were trying to prevent at the beginning actually becomes the very best cover story they can come up with at the end. And the soldiers posted at the tomb to prevent the disciples from stealing the body of Jesus in the story become the ones who certify that the body was missing not because the disciples stole it. But Matthew tells this story precisely because That was the story that was circulating among the Jews at the time that Matthew was writing. People were saying the resurrection didn't happen. The disciples stole the body. There was doubt swirling around the story of the resurrection of Jesus. And for good reason. There is still doubt that among us, in me, that swirls around the story of the resurrection of Jesus. And for good reason. Because it is, I mean, first of all, it is a story that is absolutely remarkable. Like, almost in the literal sense, not believable. It is unbelievable that this would happen. Um, One of the ways in which uh, historians establish the truthfulness of things that have happened in the past is by what they call the principle of analogy. They use the sources they have, the artifacts, the writings, or whatever, to establish the data. And then they kind of reconstruct what must have happened based on our shared common human experience. That we can understand what happened in the past largely because they were human beings like we're human beings and we can sort of piece it together based on our own experience. But what do you do when there's an event that happened in the past that has absolutely no analogy to anything you've ever experienced? Like a resurrection, right? So people will say the resurrection could not have happened because resurrections don't happen. And that's true. Dead people don't become alive again. If this happened, really the only way to be certain of it is to have irrefutable proof. And that is the one thing that you can never have about uh, a historical incident in, in general and the resurrection in particular. Short of having a closed circuit TV camera in the tomb filming Jesus as he rises from the dead or going back in time in a time machine, there is just no such thing as irrefutable proof that Jesus has been raised from the dead. 
which is why there will always be doubt in most of our minds at some point about the historical truth of the resurrection. And do you know what? That's okay. If this is a historical event like nothing else we've ever experienced, I don't think just because, by the way, we've never seen a dead person rise makes it impossible that that sort of thing happened in the past. You can have an event that happens once and then never again. But just because we've never seen something like that and there's no way to prove that it exists, there has to be doubt at some level. In fact, it was true for them too. In 28 verse 16, it says this, then the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw him, they worshiped him. But some doubted. Some doubted. Here they are. They, Jesus has been dead for mere days. They are confronted with the physical presence of the resurrected Jesus. And they still doubted. If they're going to doubt under those circumstances, how could we not periodically wrestle with doubt from time to time? And it's okay because, listen to me, doubt is not the opposite of faith. Doubt is not the enemy of faith. Doubt is a part of faith. Anything that requires faith, by definition, is something that cannot be known for certain. And anything that cannot be known for certain by anybody who's honest has to be doubted at some level. And so if you've ever doubted the reality of the resurrection, just know that you're in some pretty good company with Jesus' disciples himself. So what people do now is they try and offer alternate explanations to understand what happened to Jesus. Right? There are some people who say, well, nobody ever really intended to say that Jesus was raised from the dead. Right? The disciples, it was sort of a legend that grew among the disciples that they never really intended to mean literally. And that ultimately distracts away from Jesus' message of love God and love people, which isn't really Jesus' message. Jesus' message is Jesus is Lord, the kingdom of God has come through Jesus' death and resurrection. But, but, the, but they'll say, like, the disciples just missed Jesus so much. They so badly wanted Jesus to be raised from the dead that they started to talk about him as though he were among them. Or, or they'll say, you know, it just felt like Jesus never left them. His presence was so strong with them that they just, they started to talk as though he were still there. And the language they used eventually was resurrection. Now, the problem with that theory is that that's not what resurrection means. Resurrection refers to a dead person who in their body is alive again. But but that's one way. Another way that people try to discredit the story of the resurrection or explain it away is to explain, you know, what happened, you know, circumstantially. So why was the tomb empty? Because the, the one thing Matthew's story proves beyond a shadow of a doubt is that everybody conceded that Jesus' tomb was empty. Right? If Jesus' tomb wasn't empty, someone would have just produced a body and said, no, here he is. He's still dead. And that would have ended the whole conversation. But Matthew knows everybody concedes the tomb is empty. Why is the tomb empty? Well, maybe the disciples stole the body. And that's what Matthew's responding to. Or some people say, maybe Jesus never died. They call it the swoon theory. That Jesus kind of passed out on the cross and the soldiers thought he was dead. So they took him down and put him in the tomb. And then he came to and just sort of walked out. Which kind of depends on you believing that the most well-trained military unit in the known world is not very good at killing people and they don't recognize dead bodies even though they had literally crucified thousands of people before Jesus. It just doesn't seem very credible. 
Or people will try and explain why the disciples thought that they saw Jesus after the resurrection, after his crucifixion. And they'll say, well, they were really engaging in a practice that was known throughout the ancient world of eating with the dead. It was kind of like, I don't know if you've seen the movie Coco or uh, the animated version of Tree of Life. They both kind of talk about this Mexican day of the dead where you throw a big party and you eat and, and they believe that their loved ones who have passed away come and visit them and are present among them. And people say, well, that's what the disciples were doing. Or they'll say they saw a ghost or had a vision or a dream or a hallucination or they had a seance, they communicated with the dead. It was a paranormal activity. Well, the ancient world, I said this last week, the ancient world knew way more about paranormal activity than we do. Or people will say, you know, maybe it was, you know, something else. Maybe um, they, because they just wished that Jesus was still alive or whatever the case may be. The, the whole point is, none of those things were ever called resurrection because that's not what they are, right? But there's doubt there's doubt around what happened to the body. The question is, is it reasonable to believe that something like what the New Testament describes as happening to Jesus actually happened to Jesus and he was raised from the dead? And I believe the answer is yes. And I think there's two things that we have to think about. This isn't proof. These are just things. It's a circumstantial case that suggests to me that it's not unreasonable to believe this to be true. The two things you have to think about, the first one is this, the eyewitness testimonies, right? Matthew telling this story of a resurrection is an eyewitness testimony uh, of what happened to Jesus, right? That's, he tells his whole story with the intent of providing evidence that Jesus really was raised from the dead. In fact, you can almost hear him and the way he tells the story, having an ongoing conversation with an unbelieving person who's debating him. Right? So Matthew says, well, Jesus was raised from the dead. And somebody says, was he really? Like, did he really die? And Matthew says, well, there were guards right there at the cross making sure he was dead. Oh, well, then maybe there was a mix-up with the tombs and people went to the wrong tomb. No, the women saw where Jesus was laid and they were the ones who went back to the tomb. Oh, well, maybe the disciples stole the body. Well, there was a stone and there was a seal and there was a Roman contingent posted outside the tomb. Well, maybe they fell asleep. Well, that's what they were paid to say. Like you can just see Matthew going through trying to say, listen, this really happened. Now, I'm not saying you have to believe Matthew because I concede Matthew believes that Jesus was raised from the dead and he's a biased historian. All history is biased, but he is a biased historian towards believing in Jesus' resurrection. And he's trying to convince you of that fact. But here's the thing. If Matthew is making up this story or embellishing it to try and convince you of the resurrection, he's made some pretty odd choices for making the story convincing. For example, the way he describes Jesus, I don't think anyone would make up a Jesus like that. This is just my opinion. But if you're going to describe someone you love died and then they were raised from the dead, you wouldn't, I don't think, describe that person in the sort of weird and freaky way that he describes Jesus. That Jesus has a physical body that you can touch and see. He can eat and drink and whatever. But he can also walk through walls, appear behind locked doors. He can vanish at will. Like, 
Why would you invent that stuff? Why would you include that stuff in the story? It's, it's, I think it makes it harder to believe to include those details. It's much easier to say, well, I saw Jesus and then he died and then he came back to life and then I saw he was just like he was before. He's back from the dead. But he includes all these other details. I don't think, why would you include that stuff, right? Or if you're gonna make up a story, at least get your facts straight. Right? There are four accounts of the death and resurrection of Jesus in the Bible, in history. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Right? And all four of them describe the death and resurrection of Jesus, but all four of them describe the details differently. And in some cases, those details are absolutely irreconcilable. That if it happened the way Mark describes it, then it actually cannot happen the way Matthew describes it. They, these two stories can't both be true the way that they're told. And some people would say, well, that's proof that the resurrection didn't actually happen because there's discrepancies in the story. I don't think so. I think that's precisely the kind of thing you would expect to have happen if you put four eyewitnesses on the stand who all witnessed a very dramatic event and who were trying to testify about it, right? It happens in the court of law every single day that witnesses describe the same event in divergent ways where the details differ. And yet the whole premise of the court of law is if you listen to the stories, you can actually get back to the kernel event, what it was that really happened in general, even if the details disagree, you can figure out that something happened and you can kind of figure out what happened based on the agreement in the stories, right? And that's what's happening in the scriptures, but it's not just the testimony itself. It's who the eyewitnesses are that matter, right? And there's two sets of eyewitnesses that I think matter. If you're making up a story about Jesus' resurrection, you would never, ever, 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 ever choose, if you're Matthew, to have, or Mark or Luke or John, to have the people who witness the resurrection, who see Jesus and who tell the others be women. You would never decide that, ever, um, because in the ancient world, in, Jew, in ancient Israel, women were not even legally allowed to give testimony in court because their testimony was not believed. In fact, the Jewish historian Josephus says, he's writing about the same time as Matthew. He says, women can't give testimony, and these are his words, because they're too flighty and opinionated to be reliable for telling the truth. Now that's their opinion. That's not our opinion. At Southridge, we think we need more women voices around here in teaching and leading. And in fact, we believe that we won't discover the fullness of the truth of Jesus until we have men and women teaching and leading this entire community together. That's us. That's not ancient Israel. In fact, listen to this. The very first telling of the resurrection story in the New Testament is actually not in the Gospels. It's in the book of 1 Corinthians, written about 50 4, 55, 56, somewhere in there. And this is how the Apostle Paul tells the story. He says, verse 3 of 1 Corinthians 15. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. That Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, or Peter, and then to the twelve. You see what, what Paul does? He scrubs the women out of the story. 
right? Because they're not credible witnesses. You want to make the story credible, you put it on the shoulders of men, not women. But then what you have to believe is that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, after Paul establishes the story as depending on the men, they go back and insert women into the story. You're undermining your own credibility. Nobody would have ever done that. The only reason you would put the women in the story is if that was actually what happened. There's another set of witnesses that I find even more compelling than including the women. And that's what Paul says next in 1 Corinthians 15. He says in verse 6, After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. This to me, when, when doubt begins to arise in me when it comes to the resurrection, this to me, it, I think, is the most compelling evidence that I have to believe in resurrection. Paul says that after Jesus appeared to the disciples, he appeared to more than 500 men and women at the same time. And it's this next phrase that matters. Most of whom are still living. In fact, like what Paul is saying to the Corinthians, he's daring them to go and check out the story. He's saying, listen, you can go talk to people who had a conversation with the resurrected Jesus. In fact, you can talk to up to 500 people who have had that experience. Go check out their stories. Go ask them about their experience. Go see if their stories agree. Go see if it makes sense. Go see if it's believable and compelling. Go see if they're telling the truth. And I know that we don't have access to those 500 people, though I wish that we did. But Paul is so convinced that those 500 people will testify to their experience of the truthfulness of the resurrection that he's unafraid to say to the Corinthians, why don't you just go ask themselves? Why don't you go explore resurrection for yourself? Come back and tell me what you find. And he's absolutely convinced that they will come back with the story that Jesus has been raised from the dead. That is powerful stuff for me. It's not just the, the eyewitness testimony though. The other thing that you have to explore is the way the stories of the resurrection transformed the church. Because it really did. It transformed their theology about resurrection. You, you have to understand, the earliest church they were all Jewish people. They came out of the Jewish religion. And in the Jewish religion, beliefs about resurrection were very diverse. Some people like the Pharisees believed in the resurrection. Other people like the priests and the Sadducees didn't believe in resurrection. The crowds were kind of all over the map. It, there were, the opinions about resurrection were very diverse. And nobody cared that much. It wasn't that important a topic. The Jewish religion was not an afterlife religion. In fact, the Jews for most of the Old Testament, don't even believe there is an afterlife. Um, their religion is about the relationship you're living in with God and people right now in the here and now on this earth. And I think Christianity is more about that than we have given it credit for as well. But, but, they, but the, nobody writes about resurrection. It's not a huge topic. Nobody's writing long treatises about it or explaining it or whatever. It's just not talked about a ton. And then you have these stories of Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. And you know what happens to the Jesus community that came out of the Jewish community? Jewish community, beliefs are diverse and marginal, irrelevant. In the Jesus community, there is absolute unity on the conviction that resurrection happens. 
And it actually is described as the single most important thing you can possibly believe. In 1 Corinthians 15, 13, Paul says, if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. Paul says, if resurrection didn't happen, this whole thing is a joke and we're fooling ourselves. How does that happen? This community that has diverse beliefs on a peripheral issue, all of a sudden, they are absolutely, completely, and instantaneously unified on a singular belief about resurrection. And it is now the single most important belief in the entire faith. That's a remarkable thing. They changed their belief about the nature of resurrection. In the Jewish community, they never thought very hard about what resurrection would be like. They only used very ambiguous language. You know, people will shine like stars or whatever. I don't even know what that means. But in the Jesus community, they had very specific language to talk about resurrection. No, no, no. No, no, no. (laughs) You have a physical body. It's your physical body. You can still see the scars from your lifetime, whatever. You're still the same person. You can eat and drink and and whatever, but you can also walk the walls. And they, they share these uniform, very specific beliefs. Well, where did these beliefs come from? Unless they came from an encounter with a Jesus who was risen from the dead. And that's true about their beliefs about messiahship in Judaism. Death and resurrection had nothing to do with being a messiah. All of a sudden, the stories of the death and resurrection of Jesus, and now resurrection is how we know that Jesus is the messiah. Like, this is the point. Our beliefs about death are some of the most conservative beliefs that we have. You don't change those beliefs very easily. And yet... Jesus dies on the cross. There are these stories of resurrection and now instantaneously, completely, unilaterally and uniformly, all of a sudden, everybody's beliefs about resurrection change. Something causes that. And the most obvious explanation is that something is they had an encounter with resurrection. The other thing you have to explain is the way that the church people themselves were transformed. Right? Prior to the death of Jesus, the disciples were cowards. After the death and the stories of the resurrection of Jesus, all of a sudden they become martyrs. Right? We talked about this before Easter. That prior to the cross, they're abandoning Jesus, denying him, betraying him. They're fleeing for their lives. They don't want to suffer for having followed Jesus. They all kind of just forsake him and leave him all by himself. After the resurrection... Church tradition tells us that 11 of the 12 apostles, including Matthias, who replaced Judas, 11 of the 12 disciples were martyred because of their belief in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And the 12th one died a political prisoner of the Roman Empire because of his belief in the death and resurrection of Jesus. How does that transformation happen? Not only did they go from being cowards to martyrs, they went from being confused to being missionaries. The one thing that the Gospels are absolutely consistent is that the disciples did not understand what Jesus was talking about when he talked about being raised from the dead. In fact, in Luke chapter 18, just days before Jesus dies, it says Jesus tells him he's going to die and be raised. And it says they didn't know what he was talking about, that was lost on him, and they didn't understand. Like a triple affirmation of their complete cluelessness. They had no clue what to make of this story. After Jesus' death and the stories of his resurrection, all of a sudden they become missionaries traveling the globe, telling people that Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. 
right? The church tradition tells us they went to as far as Russia and India, North Africa, Ethiopia, Iran, Spain, Great Britain. They, they spread around the known world telling people that Jesus was raised from the dead. How do you account for this incredible transformation? Maybe it's because they had an encounter with Jesus who really was raised from the dead. Look, at the end of the day, there will never be anything like proof in the resurrection of Jesus. It will always be something that we can only ever always confess by faith. We can say, I believe in the resurrection. That's it. And doubt is going to be a part of that. Believing in resurrection will always be a leap of faith. But what I hope I've been able to demonstrate this morning is, you know, Bruxy Cavey at the Meeting House will say this. If you're going to take a leap of faith, it makes sense to run a long ramp of reason before you do. And I hope this morning I've demonstrated that there is at least reasons, compelling reasons, to suspect that something like the resurrection of Jesus really did happen. So that, like Paul says, not all of this is in vain. That Christ really is Messiah, the Savior of the world. The kingdom of God has come because Jesus really has been raised from the dead. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I, uh, I think about that prayer of Jesus or Jesus saying to his disciples, you know, blessed are you because you, see, you have seen me and you believe. But blessed are those who believe even though they've never seen me. And that's us. Having never seen the resurrected Jesus. Having no definitive open and shut proof that you were raised from the dead. Would you fill us with your spirit and give us the gift of the kind of faith that can confess that we believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ and everything that that means for our lives. Give us that kind of faith today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.